This is Families Under Pressure, a podcast series from the Life Course Centre. Over this series, we examine the pressures facing families today and the practical steps that can be taken to better support our children and families over their life course journey. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Matt Sanders from the University of Queensland and a Chief Investigator in the Life Course Centre. In this episode, I'm joined by fellow Life Course Centre Chief Investigator, Professor Steve Zubrick. Steve is an expert in child and adolescent health and development and is based at the Telethon Kids Institute at the University of Western Australia. He has instigated large-scale longitudinal studies of children and families in Australia, and he's Deputy Director of the Life Course Centre. Steve, welcome, and it's a pleasure to have you join us today. Matt, it's a pleasure to be with you and your listeners. Terrific. Steve, I wonder if I could kick things off by just asking you to talk a little bit about your background. And as it's quite a unique range of professional skills you bring to this field, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. I have an unusual training, Matt. I originally trained in the United States in speech pathology and audiology and fell in love with an Australian girl and came out to uh, Australia a long time ago now and practiced as a speech pathologist and uh, audiologist for several years before deciding to go back and do additional studies. So both my wife and I actually um, traveled back to the United States where I did a PhD in clinical psychology and neuropsychology before returning again to Perth, uh, which is where we live, and practicing for a long time in hospital and outpatient mental health settings, assessing and managing children. Then about 30 years ago, I was approached to, uh, with an opportunity actually, to set up a program of uh, research at what became the Telethon Kids Institute where uh, I, along with a group uh, of us, uh, set about to study the social determinants of health, uh, language development, and undertake large studies to track children and families over time, including the longitudinal study of Australian children and uh, the longitudinal study of Indigenous children. So it's been a been a really rich career and one that I enjoy enormously. Well, it certainly has. And what a tremendously unique combination of professional training and experience that you've brought into the Life Course Centre. And I can't help but feeling that training you've had in in language, its assessment and and the, the treatment and prevention of language and communication problems in kids is such an important aspect of early development, isn't it? Oh, it's been enormously valuable and very rich uh, addition to my life, um, uh, my career, and I hope hope to uh, the children and families that we study. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your involvement with the Life Course Centre and what you think uh, sets it apart from other kinds of research endeavours that you've been involved in uh, prior to this. Well, like you, I was one of the chief investigators on the initial Australian Research Council bid for the centre back in 2014. But naturally, I'm delighted, really, that the centre has been extended funding to the next seven years. But uh, in any event, the involvement that I've had really has seen us bring together, quite uniquely, scientists from different disciplines in the social sciences, along with policymakers and practitioners, to share a focus, really, on uh, a great interest of mine, human development, 
over the life course, to my way of thinking, there are very few settings that fund research to this scale and that require absolute collaboration uh, between the social sciences. And I think this makes the Life Course Center and our experience in it an exceptional one. I really do. We're, we're addressing and, uh, and continuing to address some really big questions. How, how do we tackle poverty and disadvantage? How do we create opportunities for more people to fully participate economically, socially, and civically, and choose lives that they value. And it's that unique bringing together of a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary perspective where each of the disciplines have something to contribute, both individually and collaboratively, that makes it also special, doesn't it? Oh, it, it, it does. I've said this many times, and I'll say it again. It's an exhilarating experience, one that carries with it enormous responsibilities, but it's a, it's a great adventure. When you think about the progress that's been made since the establishment of the first Life Course Centre, I wonder if you could reflect on, uh, for a moment, what kind of progress has been made in tackling some of these big challenges? I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a challenging question in itself. But first, I think that the Life Course Centre has really succeeded in putting longitudinal and life course approaches to addressing poverty and disadvantage and inequality on the national agenda. Australia is, well, it's not unique among nations, but its achievements in setting out to do longitudinal work, certainly over the past 20 to 25 years, have really been impressive. We've got some fine national longitudinal studies that are very well used in research circles as well as in policy that are contributing to our understanding of who we are and what we're like as Australians living in a unique part of the world. I think that we can say that we have participated in and put forward a larger conversation in high levels of government and policy making and practice about disadvantage and inequality But I also think that in saying that, it's important that uh, along with the other CIs, we've never claimed that we're going to solve or eliminate child poverty. But what we are doing is shining a light where policy and practice can make a real impact and difference. For example, one of these areas, I think, is undoubtedly the, the early years of child development. Yeah, I wonder if you could just tell us a bit more about some of that early years work that you've been continuing to progress within the Life Course Centre. Why is that so important? Well, at the outset and at the risk of driving you crazy with something you've heard me say before, I can I can often frustrate colleagues by starting with the obvious, and, and that's that the vast, vast majority of Australian children and families are, are you know are doing a remarkable job given the complexities of modern life. I, and if, I couldn't agree more on that one. And if ever we've wanted to see modern life get complicated, this year's dished it up absolutely front and centre. But, you know, having said that, there's still an unnecessarily large number of Australian children who come into the world in disadvantaged circumstances. These circumstances limit their growth and their development and their potential over the life course. These circumstances, when we look at them through the lens of our life course center, are complicated. They're multidimensional, and they're often inherited intergenerationally, and they're certainly not random, okay? Our our research shows that the risks of developmental disadvantage hunt like wolves, okay? They travel in packs. 
And through this, we've identified some distinct risk clusters. I like to call them risk circumstances that pertain to to the early years. Steve, can you give us an example or two of what's in those risk clusters that you think are so critical? I I sure can. Uh, You can get combinations of what I call uh, one of the risk circumstances is what we what I would refer to as the working poor. These are these are families, often couple families, in which both couples are engaged in employment. They're they're you know they're out there working, and despite their investment in the labour force, the return on that in terms of what they're actually paid is small, uh, relatively small, and it keeps them at or near levels that are low and often border on poverty in and of its of itself. These families are both time poor and cash poor. And that makes for a developmental circumstance that is really quite vexing in terms of the growth of their children. Another example of a developmental circumstance is almost uniquely centered on families with very, very young parents, parents under the age of 20. Their children, interestingly, grow at a slower rate, about six months behind typically growing children. And they look like they're growing at about the same rate of kids in the, in the working poor families. And yet, when we look through the life course lens, the policy prerogatives for both of those groups are quite different. So those are, those are examples of okay. growth that's uh, slowed down because of risk circumstances, and it often lights a long fuse with a very big bang. So there are lots of people listening to this who will really like to get your take on, so what can be done about this in terms of intervention to try to uh, break the cycle of children being born into these circumstances so they're not just recreated from one generation to the next? What do we need to be doing? Well, it remains the case that education is still a game changer. Education is one of the great forces of development that is explicitly organized to change child development. And not even parenting is designed to do that, Matt. Education should be a game changer for all children. One of the things that we need to pay more attention to is is how kids get selected for the team, if I could put it that way. Its advantage is persistent, and it's evident from the earliest contact points in education. And when I look at our research through the Life Course Centers, we've used progressive measures of early child development to really try to overcome individual point-in-time thinking and map how children speed up or slow down in their growth. We've been able to pinpoint that schools are a valuable entry point But our current institutional arrangements really are, at the moment, uh, running the risk of supporting persistent disadvantage. There's a very heavy emphasis on streaming that tends to put kids apart from one another, where they, in fact, would be a great advantage to share similar experiences and educational approaches and techniques. Given that you'll have some children who are entering the school system who will have had a very, very different uh, early childhood experience in terms of their language exposure and just language interactions in in their family environments, do you feel that the level of difference that is visible on school entry is just so great, there's never a capacity to really catch up for those kids who've lost a lot of that earlier opportunity for interaction? 
Oh, I think I think we're safe to safe to say never never say never. What children are able to overcome, and indeed, I think we can look across the life course. What we're able to overcome and demonstrate is we're able to rise to challenges and adversity throughout the life course. Certainly, the early entry points in school are places where there can be vivid differences between children. School is a rather official setting where we all assume that every child that arrives on day one was manufactured on the same date. They're not. There are wide variations in their capacities, and that variability can be used to our advantage. What uh, certainly would help is a greater sensitivity on reception, on arrival at school, an ability to look more closely at individual performances and deliver what we call proportional universalism. Give all children opportunities and expectations, but where we find kids moving a little more slowly and battling a little more steeply uphill, really being able to get behind those children and families and provide the necessary support, sometimes push, sometimes encouragement to bring forward the best of their performance in in ways that allow them to catch up. And it's certainly crucial that children establish a regular pattern of school attendance, isn't it? Because if you've got kids being truant for far too much of the school year, they get progressively more and more behind. It does matter being there. Um, and yeah. in fact, oftentimes we, I mean, we get over-focused on attendance per se and forget to remember that showing up is part of life. Yeah. And it's a very useful skill, not just at, at school, but at work in love, on the sport field, you name it. Yeah, across the board. So how do you think the events of this year, I mean, it's been a truly exceptional year, hasn't it, with the COVID pandemic? And I mean, so many families, so many kids, so many people have been doing really tough. I mean, we've just been seeing the absolute delight that has kicked into Melbourne as the latest lockdown has sort of come to an end. But I wonder if I could just get you to reflect for a moment on the effects that you think this has had on early childhood and and health and well-being and kids' development in general. Any thoughts on this? Oh, who wouldn't have thoughts on it? What an unexpected set of circumstances we're faced with and what what remarkable variation there is across Mm. the country in our journey through this pandemic. Certainly, you know, at the outset, I need to acknowledge I'm here in Western Australia. We've traveled somewhat of a different path, not better, not worse. But with COVID, the borders here have been closed. And effectively, we've had no community spread to speak of. Schools and daycare uh, have been open and our public health precautions are in place. It's given a very different flavor to the experience here. With that said, Matt, we have anecdotal reports of very high use of our mental health system Mm. with reported levels of stress, particularly in some sectors such as hospitality and travel, and with families that are separated across state boundaries and not able to be together and meet with one another. That's resulted in our mental health sector here reporting extremely high demand. Our own studies within schools of mental health and well-being are underway underway right now, and we're taking a snapshot of how kids are going. The data really aren't available to scrutinize closely at this point, but I think undoubtedly what we're going to, to get back, even here in WA, are indications of quite high levels of mental health distress. 
The extent to which we're going to see long-term effects, I think, are ahead of us, and they'll be studied for years to come. In the meantime, what I feel safe, uh, certainly, in saying is that there's a desperate need for us to maintain our social cohesion, our individual and family networks, and supports, and to make sure that we're supporting our populations with clear messages and leadership during this time. We're simply stronger together. Absolutely. I have a passionate commitment to the importance of parenting and family relationships and influencing the life course journey of both children and of adults. This has really come to my attention very starkly within a COVID environment where we start to speculate about the long-term impacts on children. And I just wonder how crucial it is that children and their parents are actually better equipped to handle some of the challenges that they're confronting right now, which for many families are different than the, the, the ones that they've typically had to deal with to date in raising their children. And so I just wonder if you'd reflect for a moment, if you think about the life course journey, what sort of importance do you uh, place on the importance of uh, parenting and family relationships? It's impossible to underestimate the importance of it. Parenting is undeniably one of the major ingredients in human development. It provides that marvelously unique combination of ingredients that do change children in that that what happens between a parent and a child occurs close to the child fairly regularly over an extended period of time. And part of the magic in that is that it's reciprocal. It's not just the child that changes, the parent changes too. And that dynamic can't be scrutinized enough. Why? Because it changes because of context. The historical period, the circumstances in which we live influences the very fabric and nature of parenting. And if ever we saw that writ large, we see it this year in COVID where we've seen tens upon thousands of children returned home for schooling. We've seen parents returned home from their workplace. We've seen the household become something that it hasn't had to be in a very, very long time. These have large impacts on all of us. I guess one of the abiding notes that I would make of it is this is not about super parenting. It may feel like it is at the moment, but it's it's certainly about good enough, confident parenting and support. And I think this is where the research and the practice community get behind uh, get behind parents and be there for them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And one of the things that really strikes me when we have any discussion about the impact of parenting on children's development is just to really uh, emphasise what you're saying about the reciprocal nature of those influences because adults are still evolving and developing over time as they become more experienced. And all of this talk about all of the action with child development being over in the first thousand days of life is just a nonsense because when you think about the life course and the crucial importance of family relationships and parenting, A COVID-type experience really reminds you how crucial our relationships with teenagers are and the parenting issues that are associated with kids not being in in their regular classrooms and their disrupted peer environments. And then you think of parenting as a 
middle-aged person with taking care of, of grandparents and then you've got adult kids and you've got grandchildren, you know, that that adds to the, the fabric of multiple influences that are interacting with each other to influence the life course. I mean, what are your thoughts on that kind of idea? I completely agree with the observation. I think that the other thing that that enforces us to remember is that while it looks as if parenting is endlessly flexible and limitless, it's not, okay? It is a finite commodity, just like the number of hours is in the day. And, you know, these are these are points, again, I, you know, I keep returning to looking at how we how we design and support our families and children, how we recognize the and I think I think this has happened during COVID, the great value that teachers and daycare providers represents as part of the developers of our children and part of the buffering mechanisms, actually, for daily daily life for parents and families. Yeah, it's really hard for me to envision enough of a buffering effect when children live in a toxic and extremely stressful family environment. And part of the challenge is to, you know, recognise that there are multiple influences, as you're saying, in kids' lives and the empowerment of all of those folk who can influence the life course with knowledge, skills and confidence is a very worthwhile challenge for us all to be aspiring to contribute to. Steve, I'm wondering, just from the life course perspective, how inevitable do you think it is that disadvantage needs to continue across generations? We see it happening a lot, but it can be broken, can't it? Can families exit from poverty in a way that, you know, we'd love to think is, a, is possible? I've got a starting point for this. I think people often read this question as, uh, can we eliminate poverty or opt for its alternate form, which is the poor will always be with us? And neither, neither position is accurate or overly helpful. First, and I think it's important to state this, we have excellent evidence, uh, excellent examples globally of entire nations moving out of poverty. Previously, third world countries such as China and India have made phenomenal progress. Now, that's not to say, secondly, that, that, that these countries or others are free of poverty, far from it. But when you look across time at indicators like GDP or the Human Development Index, many uh, have previous, rather many previously impoverished countries have vastly changed the circumstances for their population. Now, at at a more personal level, the intergenerational transmission of disadvantage does change. We could see this in the post-Depression and post-World War II period, for example, in the country that I come from, the United States, where there were marked changes in uh, social aspirations and destinations of previously poor, like my family, often first-generation migrants who came looking for betterment. Education and employment, along with improving health, remain, Matt, major instruments in changing the life course of individuals. Absolutely. Just in wrapping up, I wonder if you could just think about some key takeaway messages you'd like the audience to tune into. Look, if money were not an obstacle, what should be done? What should be done in policy and practice? Okay, uh, so now I will go to your question. Can Can all families exit poverty? Certainly a higher proportion of them can, and that needs to be advanced. 
And our concern as scientists and for policy is that it's becoming increasingly more difficult to exit from poverty. If I could wave a wand, my general view is we understand the mix of strategies that is needed, particularly to address high levels of social inequality that set or deny opportunities for betterment and that set low or no expectations for some, but not for others. And the result of that being a constraint in their development and a recipe for high stress, greater social chaos and social exclusion. I think the Life Course Center works across this spectrum with scientists trained in several disciplines to uniquely equip and develop and assess policies that change that mix. We have a very good idea of what would work better. It requires persistent focus to advance that agenda. Thanks, Steve, for your time today and and some of the wonderful insights that you've brought to uh, this discussion. And so that's it for our latest episode of Families Under Pressure. I'm Professor Matt Sanders, and I'll be interviewing more Life Course Centre chief investigators in coming episodes. I hope you can tune in then.